Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our sponsor, because remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's introduce Dr. Steven Snyder. Steven, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. We're glad you're here as well. Steven, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Uh, I'm a sex therapist uh, in New York City. It's pretty much all I do. I've been doing that for about 30 years. And uh, now also the author of a new book, Love Worth Making, How to Have Ridiculously Great Sex in a Long-Lasting Relationship. I see couples and individuals um, for consultations and sex therapy, and uh, that's basically what I do. Well, that is very cool. Now, explain to our audience what a sex therapist is, because I think that a lot of people believe that this is just something that either very, very rich people do, usually maybe (laughs) to try to, you know, explain their affairs away, or it's just something that's (laughs) featured in movies. But we know that it's actually a lot more common. I think that people just don't talk about it, giving it this, this sort of enigmatic property to it. But it's actually very common, (laughs) right? It's pretty common, although it's probably underutilized. Actually, in the beginning of my book, I, I tell a story of my daughter told when she comes home from sixth grade, she says, you know, we're going around the room talking about what our parents do for a living. And uh, came her turn. She said, I was a psychiatrist, which happens to be true. And uh, her best friend sitting behind her goes, he's a sex therapist, at which point the class went nuts. And uh, after all the shouting and hubbub had died down, one little kid in the corner goes, what does he do? You know, so that's always the curiosity. So we always tell people that we don't, we don't sleep with patients. We don't really touch them at all. We just talk about sexual problems. Um, but it turns out when you talk about sex with people, it opens up a whole nother dimension for people because there's all sorts of things that people are feeling when they go to bed, when they make love, that they don't talk about. So simply coming into a room with a facilitator and talking about your sex life can be an extraordinary experience. I always have people focus on their feelings. What are they really feeling uh, when they make love? People want to know, are people really authentically feeling aroused? That's usually the first step. Not many people know, you know what's authentic arousal or not. They just think it's being hard or wet. So you really have to tell people it's a lot more than being hard or wet. So your book, however, you've described it as kind of a self-help book, right? So yeah, yeah, not absolutely. going in and seeing you, but having you come to them in the written word. Absolutely. I'm, I'm the same person in the office as in the book. And after 30 years of doing this, I figured, you know what, I could, I could get this down on paper that anybody could read. And there's some real, real basic things that whether you ever end up going to a sex therapist or not, most people can benefit from. For instance, what I mentioned before about knowing how aroused you are, not many people have developed a vocabulary to discuss their own arousal experiences. That's one of the first things I do in the book. I talk about how arousal has three main hallmarks. The first is it kind of grabs you and takes you over. So you're not so worried about what's going to happen the next day. If the phone rings, you don't really care. You don't care who's calling. You're just involved with your own erotic experience. People tend to lose IQ points 
when they get uh, aroused. People who are aroused tend to arrive late for meetings because their time sense gets disturbed. Number two is that when somebody's aroused, they tend to regress. They get a little more selfish, a little uh, less willing to have deferred gratification, a little more childish. They just want what they want now. We may feel very into our partner, but we don't really want to hear all about how their day went. We just want them to make nice noises and tell us we're wonderful. And the third is that arousal feels validating, it makes you feel good about yourself. You have a feeling of, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's who I really am. That's, that's where I really, really live. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me home to where I really live. So the beginning is to get people talking a vocabulary so they can recognize when they're really authentically aroused. Couples could have sex for years and never be authentically aroused, but it's that authentic arousal that really creates, as I say in the book, love worth making, the kind of sex that's going to make you really want to come back for more. It's very interesting that you say that people don't have a vocabulary surrounding sex since you can mm -hmm. drive down the street and see that sex is being used to sell toothpaste and bubble gum <laughs> and every product imaginable has some sort of sexual tie-in. Why do you think it is that way? Why are we willing to talk about other people having sex, but we lack the vocabulary to discuss it with our partners? I'm really glad you asked that question. One might say, uh, and this is not original to me, that there are three parts of sexual experience. One might call them the body, the head, and the heart. The body, physical sensation, friction. People have a vocabulary for that. The head, fantasy, desire. People have a vocabulary for that. The heart, that's where people lack the vocabulary. And so what I talk about is this infantile regressive quality to really, really good sex where you feel this sense of validation like, yeah, this is really me. I feel uh, deeply felt. I feel deeply. I feel connected in a deep way. That's the part that people lack the vocabulary for. That's the one part of sex that you can't advertise, that you can't turn into a commodity. And it's that reason that's fallen off the radar in the modern world. You see a lot of self-help books about sex that talk about novelty, kink, fantasy, threesomes, polyamory, vibrators, sex toys, uh, whatever. But they don't get into that heart aspect. That's why I wrote the book, because I couldn't find anything on that subject. You mentioned polyamory in that list there, and that is a topic that is very known to me. And I just want to hear what your opinions of it are. Good question. I get that all asked all the time. The key thing with polyamory is you got to know that it's who you are. It's a little bit like being straight or gay. There are some people for whom monogamy never really made that much sense. They go, you know, I don't understand why I should be restricted. There's some famous books about this. People saying, you know, people act like there's a shortage of sex out there. There's not. It's, it's enough for everybody. And these people tend to be low on jealousy. They tend to be a little untraditional in their thinking. And for them, polyamory can work quite well. I think the trouble is when you get somebody who's not naturally a polyamorist, who turns to it in order to repair a relationship that's hurting. Like we've hit a dead end as a couple. Maybe it'll help if we open up the relationship. That tends not to work very well. It's a little bit like saying we've hit a dead end as a couple. Why don't we have a baby? 
that tends not to work very well either. And the reason is the same. The reason is you're introducing a third person. And that third person is not just a need-satisfying object to balance your relationship. It's a whole new individual with their own set of complicated needs. And they're usually going to take rather than give. And so that's why it doesn't work. That's the problem I see the most often. The other with polyamory is one person who wants to try it and the other is not that enthusiastic and ends up being kind of talked into it, which doesn't work out very well. The best is when you have both people who really are on that wavelength and they go, you know, this is really who I am. I'm really somebody for whom this makes a lot more sense than monogamy ever did to me. It just happens to be who I am. Does that fit with your viewpoint or is it different? 100%. Yes, okay. I, I was right with you and I've been nodding along the whole time you've been talking and it's, okay. it's, it's, and it's unusual because so many people don't understand what polyamory is supposed to be about, which is that the focus is on relationships and not just sex. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my favorite book about polyamory is more than two. Do you know, by, um, mm-hmm. what's his name, Vo, where he sees, he was the one who gave me the idea about the people are not just need satisfying objects. They have their own needs. And most people who try to do polyamory, they have a primary couple and they're setting boundaries to make sure that the primary couple is okay. The problem is it makes the third person into a non-entity it makes the third person as somebody who doesn't have rights. And I think that's one that Franklin Vo is very, very eloquent about talking about, you know, that third person's a real person. They have real needs. Well, I appreciate that a lot because you're right. A lot of times we tend to look at relationships as how do they serve us and mm-hmm. how do they serve us sexually seems to be right up at the top there. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is, is something called simmering. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to explain what this is because you're on the show. Can, can you explain to our audience <laughs> what simmering is, please? Glad you asked. It's one of my favorite subjects. Simmering means enjoying being excited without any expectation that it's going to go anywhere in particular. It has no goals. It's just excitement for excitement's sake. It says that feeling excitement is a good thing, even if you don't end up having sex. Most couples make the mistake of only getting excited when they're going to have sex. The rest of the time, they take care not to get excited as if it's some kind of uh, illness or something. They want to avoid it. And they only do it when they're going to have sex. So classic example of simmering is two high school students in between classes. They have three minutes in between classes. They meet at one of their lockers, embrace, inhale the scent of each other's hair, breathe together, hold each other, their bodies mold together. Then the bell rings. They kiss, look deeply into each other's eyes, and they run off in opposite directions, each feeling a little buzzed. That's ideal. Every married couple should do that as much as they can because it keeps the erotic temperature in the relationship at the right level. If you're like most couples, though, you only get excited when you're going to have sex. So it's important to remember, get excited even when you're not going to have sex. Is it a little frustrating? Yeah, sure, but that's what keeps you in the game. You should simmer before you go to bed at night. Instead of kissing your wife or husband goodnight, simmer them goodnight. Just a little bit getting excited and then fall asleep. And instead of kissing your spouse goodbye in the morning, simmer them goodbye. Do the same thing as those teenagers. Hold, inhale, breathe together, mold your bodies together, kiss, look deeply into each other's eyes, and go off feeling a little excited. It's a great way to start the day. So why don't most couples do this? They simply don't know. (laughs) There's There's so many things in sex therapy where you tell couples things and they go, 
Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, just, for some mm-hmm. reason, people just don't think about it. One of the reasons, and this is something else that I hammer about over and over again in the book, is that couples think about sex as a series of preparations for orgasm. Orgasm is the big bugboo in sexual relationships. As a matter of fact, one of the definitions I give of a sex therapist in the book is that we're the rare person in the world who doesn't really care about orgasms. The reason we don't care about orgasms is everybody else cares about them so much. And couples often get into bed thinking, are we going to have sex? Well, okay, we're going to have sex. What's the fastest and most convenient way to give my partner an orgasm? And in the process, I mean, that's like going out to dinner and saying, okay, now how do we get dessert? It's ridiculous. There's no way to enjoy having dinner. Dessert should be an afterthought after you've really enjoyed the dinner. Then the dessert tray comes around and you go, oh, wow, we get dessert too. That's great. But you really want it to take you somewhere special. You want it, you want it to have had an arousal experience where you got really dumb and happy and lost some IQ points together first. Then you go and have dessert. And that's, that's good. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I, I want to, full disclosure, when you said that orgasms aren't important, me as a man said, the hell you say. I just, I, I, I agree with everything that you, that you said. I, I too, you know, I, I consider it flirting, like a little self-disclosure. You, you know, I, I like to leave with a, you, you know, a, a, a deep embrace or, or a passionate kiss because I sort of feel that it's like foreplay that builds up for a few days. But I, yeah. I want to be clear. I, I still, even if I'm following all of the <laughs> simmering rules, I, I still see sex in the future. And yeah, that's yeah. actually my question that, the simmering thing doesn't sound like you're saying that orgasms aren't important. It sounds to me like you're saying, hey, look, you can extend it out so that when you finally get to the finish line, it's like better. I don't want to put words yeah, in can, your mouth. So how do you feel about I that I idea? I guess I, don't, I guess I don't think of it that way. I think of it that orgasm is really the dessert at the end of a good meal. It's wonderful, but it's not the reason you went out to dinner. The reason you go out to dinner is to feel dumb and happy together and to have the experience take you into that zone where you've lost those IQ points, where you don't care whether the phone rings and where you feel that sense of very deep validation. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of entrancement or hypnosis. And that's what people remember when they remember really, really good sex. They don't remember their orgasms. It's hard to remember an orgasm. But that feeling of really, really being aroused that stays in people's minds. And I know this is different than how most people think about it. That's why I wrote the book. Because most people are under this tyranny that says, oh, when am I going to come? When are you going to come? And in the process, they're just having dessert and they're missing the whole meal. So it's a, it's a contrarian viewpoint, perhaps. One of the things that I'm thinking is I, I suspect that a lot of women are going to agree with you and that a lot of men are going to disagree with you. Have you found that to be the case? And why is that no, the case? No, actually, actually, I haven't. I've found it the opposite. I okay. find that uh, most men tend to agree with me. And most women agree, but there are a few women who disagree passionately. And I have this in the book as well, where they say, no, 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 no. My orgasms, they are much more than dessert. They are a whole thing. You know, the, the legend of Tiresias, who was the figure in Greek mythology, who had spent part of his life as a man and part of his life as a woman. He uh, was always asked, you know, which had been better sexually? And he goes, oh, hands down, woman, <laughs> much better. 
he said, you know, that, that I, I, I quote some, a, a transgender writer, a, a, a male to female transgender, uh, whose name is Julia Serrano in the book, where she says they're boygasms and girlgasms. And as had somebody who's had boygasms and girlgasms, she goes, oh, no, girlgasms are so much better. They're really a main event. So there you have it. I, I will never have a girlgasm in my life, so I'm just speculating. But I think there are some women for whom this is not the case, whereas most men you know, it's an event, it happens, it doesn't last that long, and afterwards you're really done. There was a famous sex writer, Kevin Lehman, who compares a man after orgasm to like a dying salmon. And I think it's a very graphic description. <laughs> but, but, but accurate. <laughs> but accurate, but accurate. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. We really appreciate your candor when it comes to this topic, and I'm sure that our audience will as well, because, it, again, it, this hey, I'm, is... I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sex therapist. We're all about candor. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Vin, you had a question. Well, yeah, but now all I can think about is a dying salmon, and I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> you realize that, like, an insult is going to be, you haven't been a dying salmon in two years, or... <laughs> I was well, a dying thing, salmon last thing, night. The other, thing is, the other thing that people don't realize, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that you have more options than you think when you're in bed together with your partner. Most people feel they have to go through this highly stylized routine that they have to do foreplay, then they usually have to do some kind of intercourse, and then they have to have orgasms, and then they've kind of like done their thing. It's like in the Olympics, there's a mandatory requirement that every routine has to include these things. In reality, it doesn't. In reality, everybody knows that a woman, most women don't necessarily have to have an orgasm in order to be satisfied during sex, right? There is a double standard, though, in that most women will get upset if their man doesn't have an orgasm, but there are certain guys who have difficulty having orgasms, and for such a guy, I usually recommend have intercourse for a while. When you've had enough, pull out and give yourself an orgasm. It's a lot easier that way. I also recommend the couples, if, if one wants to have sex and the other doesn't, they do what's called lazy sex, and uh, that's a term that a patient of mine invented a long time ago, where if one wants to and the other doesn't, the person who wants to have an orgasm or get excited lies on their back and strokes themselves uh, to orgasm while the other person just kind of rubs up against them and says nice t things to them and kisses their hair. Everybody's happy. So it doesn't always have to be mutual. You got a lot more options than you think. Right. Let's get to another point that kind of comes from something that you said there. Let's talk about erectile dysfunction. Okay. What do you suggest for... I mean, aside from, you know, a little blue pill, what do you suggest for couples that are dealing with that? Okay. I'm a strong believer in the little blue pill. Um, I practiced sex therapy for a decade before Viagra was invented, but I got to tell you, the results are a lot better with it. I think that there's really 
only one reason a man needs to have an erection, and that's so he doesn't have to worry about whether he's going to get an erection. An <laughs> erection for a guy is like uh, the projector at the movie theater. He needs the projector to be working so he can enjoy the movie. He doesn't want to think about the projector. Nobody wants to think about an erection. Neither a man nor a woman wants to worry about a man's erection. So I, I think the little blue pill is a fine thing. And I have several examples in my book. And I, I may be a real outlier here, but I don't think so. I wrote an article once called, Can a Man Make Love Like a Woman? The answer is yes. A woman doesn't have to worry about whether she's going to stay hard or whatever. She can just feel whatever she feels. If a guy has an erection, he can just feel whatever he feels. So that being said, there are two kinds of erectile problems. There's one where a guy's erections are fine unless he's with a partner. And when he's with a partner, they go down either at the beginning or often right before penetration, which is very, very confusing for everybody. And the rule of thumb there is that the penis is the most honest part of the body and its vocabulary is limited, yes or no. And the key in sex therapy is trying to figure out what it's saying. Very often it's what's called shy penis, that the penis just wants to get to know the person first before uh, it uh, does any kind of penetration. And usually that gets better within a couple of weeks. But there's some guys that freak out so much about it that it become a more persistent problem. The other is physical erectile dysfunction, which is epidemic really among guys age 40 and over. And I see a lot of guys who suffer needlessly because they're afraid to take the pill. These pills are so good that a large part of what I do in my practice with these men is to encourage them to take that, to say it's okay. You know, your wife uses a lubricant. Why can't you use a pill? It's the same thing, really. They both make up for the fact that there's some age-related decrease in blood flow. Okay, but I think there's another one that uh, we need to address too, which is that that is brought on by drugs. Antidepressants, for example, can lower your sex drive and, and lead to those kind of problems too. And, you know, a lot of our, our listeners are people who are, are on medication. All right. So I'm really glad you asked about this because there's a lot of confusion, both among the lay public and also in the research literature about this. There are basically three parts of sexual function. There's desire, there's arousal slash erections in men, and there's orgasm. The most common part of sex that's affected by serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants is orgasm. It's a predictable dose-related effect of it. That's why it's frequently used off-label for premature ejaculation. It simply raises the threshold of how much stimulation you need in order to activate the orgasm reflex. Make sense? Yeah. The second is desire. It's well known that some people on these medicines lose desire, sometimes significantly so. And that's sometimes a problem, sometimes not. Sometimes it can be quite helpful if a guy's a sex addict and he's masturbating three or four times a day to pornography, can really cut that down with one of these medications. The least understood and rarest and most idiosyncratic, hardest to predict, is an effect on erectile dysfunction. In my experience, it's roughly one out of 10 guys take these medicines, experience some degree of erectile dysfunction. And it's extremely important as a practitioner to watch guys like a hawk when they're taking these medicines and ask them in every session, are you still getting morning erections? Are you still getting erections with self-stimulation? 
Are you still getting erections with your partner? And to make sure that there's been no decrement in their erections. If there is, the only thing I know to do about that is to stop it, stop the medication, because maybe another medication won't have that effect. And you can sometimes have to try several of them before you can find one that doesn't have that effect. So I'm really Thanks. glad you asked because it's an extremely important public health issue. Thanks for the response. Thank you so much. Now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about probably the most common complaint that we can read anonymously on the internet. What would you mm -hmm. say to a couple that has dramatically different levels of sexual desire? So one partner wants to have sex daily and the other partner wants to have sex monthly. So we're talking a, a wide chasm here, not, not, yeah. just, not just slight, but you know, daily versus monthly. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take the simplest example. The man wants to have sex daily and the wife wants to have sex monthly. The best solution for that is what I call lazy sex. He wants to have sex in the, at nighttime. She doesn't. He goes, well, let me have some lazy sex. She says, fine. He lies on his back and she holds him, rubs herself up against him, helps him get excited and uh, strokes his hair, says nice two things to him while he gives himself an orgasm with his hand. Then she falls asleep. She doesn't have to get up to urinate afterwards and uh, everybody's happy. And there are lots of couples who do that a lot. It's a lot better than the guy having to go in the bathroom and turn on his phone and look at pornography. That's lonely. Why not do it in bed with your partner? But yeah, what if on. that's not a good option? I mean, I, I could see that filling in a gap if it was, you know, once a week versus twice a week. But yeah, yeah. To, to use those numbers there, you know, you, you've got, you're masturbating with your wife 29 times versus having yeah. traditional sex. I mean, that's, that's. Okay. Let's bring out some more options. Let's go deeper. You really want to know why the wife doesn't want sex more than once a month. Sometimes, as the famous saying in sex therapy, it's because the sex they've been having isn't worth wanting. So the important thing is what's actually going on when they're having sex. And you can find very interesting things when you really get into the nitty gritty. In sex therapy, we call this a sexual status exam. We talk, okay, blow by blow, tell me what happens first, what happens next. And you'll find out things that it becomes crystal clear why the woman doesn't want to have sex more than once a month. For instance, maybe he takes a long time to ejaculate and it's become really a drag for her after about a half an hour and she's getting sore. Maybe he's very quick to ejaculate and she doesn't want to get frustrated because it's over too fast. Maybe she really craves for him to go down on her and for some reason or another he doesn't like that, so she's frustrated. Maybe uh, she's having pain, which is very, very common. And there are lots and lots of other reasons. So I think that uh, you don't want to take that one at face value. A lot of times it's possible by enhancing everyone's needs being met during sex and working out some of the difficulties that a person can be much more willing to have sex on a more frequent basis. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that answer. You're welcome. Let's focus on sex therapy exactly. How does that work? Well, sex therapy is just psychotherapy, but it's focused on sex. Like any psychotherapy, it has to do with a person becoming aware of all aspects of their experience, what they're really thinking and feeling, talking about what they think and experience, and uh, learning to self-observe and 
figuring out what they really want and how to get more of what they really want. And it's about as simple as that. There are some more specialized techniques. Uh, the original ones were developed by Masters and Johnson, which were really mindfulness techniques where people focused on their uh, ability to pay attention during physical stimulation and not to get distracted by negative thoughts, to stay in the moment. Those can sometimes be useful. Some sex therapists rely on those more than others. I probably rely on those a little less than most sex therapists, chiefly because that kind of sex therapy usually requires a, a, a number of sessions, and, and most, most patients I see want results in a lot less sessions. So I don't have time to become a mindfulness teacher like the original Masters and Johnson series. Okay. So when you're giving the um, speeded up version of sex therapy, yeah. how... What is your focus then? If it's not going to be the mindfulness, then where okay. do you go? Yeah, the, uh, the, the actual Masters and Johnson techniques, which if you see a therapist once a week can take really several weeks to get, to get going, and not everybody likes them. I put those at the end of my book. You know, if you've gone all the way to the end of the book, get instruction in those. The beginning of the book are the quicker techniques. For instance, simmering, just taking a minute or two just to enjoy the erotic moment for its own sake. You can do a lot with that. You don't need a lot of sex therapy for that. Another one that I kind of invented, I call the two-step, which is step two is to actually have sex. And step one is just to lie in bed together with the only agenda being to do nothing. So you're just not really doing much of anything and just tuning in and becoming aware in a mindful kind of way of what you're thinking and feeling, what your sensations are, the points of contact between your body and the bed, your breathing, your temperature. And that can slow you way down. And then at that point, you can turn to each other and you have a much more authentic experience. I think of this as an alternative to the traditional sex date. Trouble with sex dates, a couple gets in bed together and they're not really into having sex. It's a recipe for bad sex. So I like to have patients have a chance to kind of tune up a little bit first. I call it the two-step. And that can be a really nice technique for couples. So between simmering, the two-step, lazy sex if you need it, other kinds of options if you need them, that can help a lot of couples. You don't always have to go the whole Masters and Johnson, you know, a couple of months of doing these intense mindfulness routines. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. You were trying to bring it into the 21st century. People right. rise a little faster these days. Yeah, they are. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for being on the show. The time always just flies by. We appreciate all You're the information that you've given us, where can we find you? Where can we find you and the book? Do you have a website? And I'm assuming the book is on Amazon where all fine books are sold. Yeah, book book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, indie sites, uh, and it's in uh, hardcover and uh, Kindle and audiobook. And the best way to find the book is to either come to my website, which is sexualityresource.com, or to the book page, which is loveworthmaking.com. The title of the book is Love Worth Making. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com show. PsychCentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. PsychCentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. 
Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.